Test? Test. It's on. Great. All right, we're going to go ahead and get started. If you want to find your seats, the more you bring it in, the better. It's kind of like all spread out here, but we can make it work that way too, if, you, if you've got your spot and you're comfortable. Um, it's good to be back up here. It's been a while since, since I've been up here, so I'm excited to get a chance to teach you about the book of Micah today. As you know, we're going through the minor, minor prophets. We've looked at, we've kind of done an intro, and then we've done, um, Jeff, the last two times he's done Amos, uh, he's done Hosea, and then Scott Pryor did Amos, and then Jeff did Jonah, and uh, I think that's where we, st- we started with Jonah. Yeah, I'm, I'm all mixed up right now, sorry. All right, so, I did, oh, there's the clicker. Let me, let me open us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this chance to study this really important book, as obviously every, every book in the Bible is important and meaningful, and um, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, Lord. So I pray that you would uh, equip us this morning to um, have a better handle on your word and, and especially a better handle on Micah. And would you inspire us uh, uh, through this lesson to um, know how to uh, read this book for, for all it's worth and to um, allow it to do the work it's meant to do in our lives. Uh, we need your help, Lord, um, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to talk about Micah. Make sure this is on. So I'm just going to look at six things. Who was Micah? When was he active? Why did he write? What is the structure, style of the book, and what is his message? And so what? What, is that? what difference does that make for us? All right, so who is Micah? Uh, in, the, in chapter 1, it opens up uh, Micah of Morasheth. I think that's one way to pronounce it. There's, there's probably a better... Hebrew way of pronouncing that that I don't know, but Micah of Morasheth. Morasheth was a small town about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Um, you'll see that he, he was not too far from Amos. Um, Isaiah was from Jerusalem. Hosea, uh, Jeff talked about that last week. That's where this map thinks Hosea is from, but Morasheth is, yeah, a small town, so possibly Micah was kind of a, a country boy small-town origins, um, but he ministers in Jerusalem. His ministry is in the town of Jerusalem. Um, there's lots of law language throughout the book. Some of that's just um, part of prophecy, uh, as we'll talk about more, and as I mentioned in the introduction to this course. Um, but maybe, maybe Micah had some familiarity with law, um, as, as he, he uses that language a lot throughout the book. Um, Micah is, you know, he's, he's, he's got, he's full of emotion. Uh, in, in 1 verse 8, he says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation. Um, so he, he, he has a lot of emotion about what's going on. Um, if you remember at the beginning, as I opened up this series, I talked about how you know, reading the prophets in the Old Testament can sometimes feel like having 
kind of being a fly on the wall in an intense marriage counseling situation, and you're kind of being able to view it through the eyes of the counselor. I, I, did, I did get an, um, a master's in counseling, and in some of my classes, we watched videos of counseling sessions and some marriage counseling sessions, and it was really helpful to see, and you got to see some, some of the places those, those sessions could go. And, uh, you know, you, you, you see that again in this book. You see um, this, this prophet who is uh, interceding um, and trying to help God's people with their relationship with God. Um, and you see his emotion come through in this book. This book is, he's, it's very poetical. There's lots of imagery. He's a, he's a really good, he's really good with word pictures, as we'll see. Micah is a tiny bit less direct than other prophets. A lot of prophets will just preach repentance. He actually has no specific calls to repentance in the whole book. Um, but indirectly, he very much, it's, it's a call to, to repentance. Um, when was Micah active? Uh, uh, my first lesson, I, I mentioned just the major categories of when the prophets, what was going on when the prophets were active in Israel. So there was three, um, three main categories. The pre-exilic time, that was sort of 800 to 700. Uh, in, in that time, the, the northern kingdom fell to Assyria. So during the pre-exilic time, Amos and Jonah and Hosea and Micah were all active. Uh, they all um, ministered in various ways through that time. Uh, let's see... Uh, where am I? And yeah, and we're going in the order of this class. We're going in the order of, we're going in chronological order in this class, not in biblical order, although the biblical order does line up pretty closely with chronological, but it's a little different. So that's why we're going in the order we are. And you'll see right, at, right away in Micah, um, he is uh, going during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham was um, a good king, Ahaz was bad, and Hezekiah was good. <clears throat> um, and so that's just kind of a, a general sense of when he was writing. Why did he write? Why did Micah write this letter, this prophecy? Um, he's writing to both. He's, most of the prophets are specific either to the northern kingdom or the southern. He, at the beginning, it kind of looks like he's writing to both. Um, he has this verse where he says, talks about um, Samaria, which is a reference to the northern kingdom, and to Jerusalem, the southern. But then as the letter, as the, the prophecy goes on, it, it's pretty obvious that he's focusing more on Judah, the southern kingdom. And Israel and Judah were enjoying a time of prosperity during the writing of Micah. And also, we, we mentioned that when we talked about um, Amos and Hosea. Um, it was a time of, of, of relative peace in the land um, and prosperity. Um, and Amos and Hosea were kind of speaking against some of the, the, the issues that came with that to the northern kingdom. Amos and Hosea were, were, were speaking to the northern kingdom. And Micah... Um, was speaking to the southern at the same time. So kind of, he's sort of the Amos to the southern kingdom. Um, what are ways that a time of kind of wealth and peace and prosperity, what are, what are some ways uh, 
you know, some issues that the people could be vulnerable to in a, in a time like that. Self-reliance, absolutely. Complacency, yep. Misplaced trust, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, some of the issues that uh, Micah deals with in this prophecy is idolatry. Uh, in chapter 1, he, he talks a lot about the carved images and how... Um, and verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For for, from the fee of prostitutes she gathered them, and to the fee of prostitutes they shall return. It's talking about their temple prostitution that people were starting to engage in, um, and the fee they would pay. And, uh, and it says, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So that's talking about them going into captivity um, and uh, the, the captives then being able to, to have the, the fee of that prostitution. They're going to kind of take that for themselves. <clears throat> so there's sort of this vertical sense of their idolatry, their relationship with God. But then um, it also talks a lot about the horizontal relationships with each other and um, talks about greedy landowners. We'll get into that. Talks about a corrupt political and religious leaders. He, he speaks a lot in this book about the leaders. He, he focuses a lot on the, the religious and the political leaders of that day um, who even allowed the, the, the greedy landowners that he'll get into in one part. Um, because of this failed leadership, the whole nation had become corrupt. And so Micah, in a sense, is, is focusing a little bit more on the leadership of the people, which is really important. Um, and sort of the thematic passage of the whole book is the, the famous one, Micah 6.8. Uh, what has God required of you but to do justice, love mercy, and uh, walk humbly with your God? And we'll, we'll kind of see how that becomes a theme. Structure. Um, okay, what did Micah, why did Micah write threat and promise. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be getting into that part later. I put that in the wrong part of my, my PowerPoint. All right, so the, this hit the, the structure. So if you tried to read Micah on your own without much of a sense of the background, without much of a sense of, of kind of the direction he's going, my, my first reading, I, I spent some time this week just reading through the whole book of Micah. Uh, interestingly, the, the amount of words that Micah is is the same amount of words. I, I manuscript my sermons, and um, basically his letter was the same amount of words as, as an average sermon of mine, and so it's about, it takes about 30 minutes to just sit and write, sit and read it. Um, and it, 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 was, it, it, took a lot, it took some extra work just to try and follow his flow of thought because um, he has abrupt transitions at times. Um, he'll just all of a sudden transition to something else. Um, he'll have sudden changes of gender, of person. And so most believe that Micah, the book of Micah, is sort of this thoughtful, logical putting together of several messages that he gave over his decades of prof- prophetic ministry. He, he was in prophetic ministry for, for you know, at least 25 years, possibly more. 
And so, you know, think of maybe if you were to, however long Dan ends up being the senior pastor here, at the end of his time, if you were to kind of take maybe seven or eight of sermons over his time at Redeemer and just kind of the, the seven or eight sermons that really um, get at the heart of, of some of the, what Dan was trying to teach Redeemer and, and, and kind of summarizes it and put it all together. That's, that's kind of what Micah is. This is sort of a collection of some of his most main points that characterizes prophetic ministry. Um, and many believe that Micah was the one who edited it. Uh, there's some examples throughout where it, you can kind of sense that Micah's the one putting this together, but it's not a firm conclusion. Um, the book of Mark is similar, uh, where it's a collection of Peter's sermons that Mark kind of uh, compiled uh, Mark's, uh, Peter's message into a, you know, a really nice flow. So, but it is, it, it, yeah, that, that just kind of helps you see why there's some abrupt transitions. It's, it's sort of this compiling of different messages, but they all, um, there is sort of a bigger flow that hopefully we'll see. So the message of Micah. Um, I would say Micah in many ways is a modern day, is, is an Old Testament book of James. Um, you know, one of the themes in James is faith without works is dead. And um, that's, that's a lot of what Micah gets into in this, in this book. And, you know, that's kind of the ultimate message uh, once you get to chapter 6, verse 8. And we'll get into that. Um, so let's walk through um, the book of Micah. Uh, so, it's threat, so it's also threat and promise is his, is his message. There's, there's, there's threats and then there's promises. There's judgment and there's hope. So this is sort of <laughs> my attempt to kind of show the flow of Micah. And I'm going to walk through each one of these and we're going to walk through the book kind of quickly and look at each of these characters. There's a threat and then there's a promise. There's a threat and then there's a promise. And there's, you know, it can be argued, but there's a generally three, uh, five threats and then five promises that go with them. So let's look at each one of those in turn. Um, so threat one. So I would encourage you to open up a Bible now if you have it, you know, I think there's Bibles on the seats, no? Other, under the seats? If not, um, you can find a Bible, I guess, on your device. But... Um, so it starts off in chapter 1, it kind of gives this intro, verse 1, telling who Micah is when he, when he prophesied, and then it starts out verse 2, hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the God, Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So this is like a court scene, it opens up with a court scene. So I've, like I said, he, he, he uses a lot of court language. And if you remember in my introduction lesson, I talked about how the prophets were God's covenant lawyers. They were God's prosecuting attorneys. They, they were covenant enforcers. And so, you know, that's some of where we get that language is because there's a lot of court language in Micah, but especially in the prophets. So, uh, so it's just this court scene it opens with in verse 2. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And then 1 verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Um, so we see the Lord coming out of his, 
um, of his place, and he will come down. When's another time in the Old Testament earlier where we saw that? Uh, Mount Sinai, right? There's, there's some imagery here of Mount Sinai. And there he came down. Yes, he gave the law, but it was sort of this relational movement towards his people to, to help teach them. Um, and here he's coming down in a very different way um, in judgment. And, and then it goes into um, specific judgment on the northern kingdom. And it's the only time in the rest of the book where it talks about the northern kingdom. It talks about their idolatry. And then verse 8, as I mentioned, he, he weeps and he wails. Um, and then the rest of chapter 1, he focuses more on Judah. And he starts to talk at the end of chapter 1 kind of about what's going to happen. And it's more in general at the end of chapter 1 of, okay, um, all these things are going to happen. And then in chapter 2, he gets more specific. So he's sort of saying, all right, a lot of this judgment's going to happen. A lot of these hard things are going to happen to you. And then chapter 2 he kind of zeroes more in on some specific sins. And he talks about um, greedy landowners. So chapter 2, verse 1, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they shall perform it because it is the power of their hand. That's 2, verse 1. Uh, 2, verse 2, They covet fields and seize them in houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster. So, just a note about what's going on here. It was um, perfectly legal to take someone's field if they defaulted on a loan. Um, it was completely lawful for them to take you know, uh, you know, any kind of possessions as collateral if they weren't able to pay something. Uh, that's why you see they did, they did these things in the morning. Um, and in verse 1, you see, when the morning dawns, they perform it. It's out in broad daylight. There's nothing, you know, necessarily against the law that they're doing here, which I think intensifies this. You know, we like to read this and just think, oh, these were just people who were, you know, doing these extremely horrible things. And, and there is some of that in Micah, and we'll get into that in chapter 3. But here, they're, they're, they're really just following the law of God by seizing someone's field, it's not as much that they're taking it, it's the attitude with which they're doing it. Um, they, they are doing it with, with this sort of calculated um, attitude that's, that just can't wait for them to, to do this. And, and there's no heart for what circumstances maybe have led them to need their possessions taken as collateral, or, or what led them to not be able to pay. It's all about, oh, I'm going to take this. Uh, one person said, what, what Micah is trying to say is, even if that is the case, even if it's okay to take these things as collateral, according to the law, you have no burden and concern for those people who are hurting, who are struggling, who could use the support, and you are doing everything in a calculating way that will benefit you. So that's a little bit more of what Micah is getting at here. And and it's mostly the leaders who are doing this in Israel, but, but here Micah is talking in general to all the people. So that's, that's the beginning of chapter 2. Um, so I'm still in threat 1. Kind of It goes from verse 1 verse 1 to 2.11. So I'm still in that section. And at the end of, or in the middle of chapter 2, um, he starts to go straight at the leaders. And, and some of the leaders he gets at are political leaders, but also religious. And at chapter 2, he... He goes after the prophets, the false prophets. 
Here's one of the things they were saying in in chapter 2, verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And so it's just that that classic example of speaking peace, peace, when there is no peace. Um, Many of the religious leaders were trying to just tell everyone everything's fine. And then verse 11. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would, be the, he would be the preacher for this people. Uh, Micah's almost saying, like, there was, you know, they wanted their, their religious leaders to talk about the, the joys and blessings of wine and strong drink. That, that's just kind of highlighting the place that they had gotten in that society. All right? And so there's all this threat um, involved in here. And so then the first promise comes at the end of chapter 2. And there's kind of this, this switch. We don't know if it, you know, in real life, if it came directly after that or, or if this was a later message put in, uh, later in his ministry. But um, there's a promise in, in 12 and 2, verses 12 to 13. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. So there's still hope for a remnant that God will restore. Even though God will judge them, he's, he's speaking here that there will be a remnant. There will be those of God's people who God still works through, in, and they repent, and, and God brings them back. And it says in verse 13, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. And one person said this is a picture of how the shepherd is going to come and burst through the breach that is a gap in the wall of the fortified city and to be able to enter into there and open the gates of oppression and to lead his people out for a new day. And it says there will be a noisy multitude um, at the end of verse 12. Why would they be noisy? Why would, why would there be this, this noisy multitude? It's celebration. He's speaking about the celebration that God's people are going to have in this whenever this time is. Um, and then it gives a picture of a shepherd who will shepherd his sheep and his flock, and, and that's a common uh, you know, metaphor talking about God throughout the Bible, but especially in the prophets. They, they speak about God as the, the shepherd who will come and shepherd his flock be, um, you know, in spite of the failed shepherds of that day. And um, you know, obviously that culminates as I... I was able even to preach a couple weeks ago on the Good Shepherd, and Jesus is sort of making allusions to some of these passages. Ezekiel 34 is the biggest one, but this is probably one as well that he was thinking of when Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd. All right, so threat and this promise, and then there's another, then it goes back to threat. And all of chapter 3 is sort of in that category of threat. It gets into gruesome detail of the evil of the leaders, of, of the rulers. Um, Look at 3, verses 2 to 3. You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, talk about, you know, just (laughs) convicting detail and, and just, yeah, gruesome detail. Um, he, he's kind of talking about cannibalism there, and he's, it's, it's sort of metaphorical. He's likening the way that they're treating the people to cannibalism. They're, they're treating them completely inhuman. <clears throat> and so 
he, that's more a little bit more towards the, the political, the kings and, and the king's leaders of the people. Um, but then in verse 5, the prophets are condemned again. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets, 3 verse 5, who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. And then Micah calls himself the true prophet in verse 8 of, of chapter 3. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Um, and then he, he finishes out chapter 3 just kind of talking more about the failures of the leadership of Israel. Um, and it finishes by saying that Jerusalem is going to fall because of all of this. 3 verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion, Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. And so you're left at the end of chapter 3 wondering, what is God going to do about all this? All this, um, all this pain, all this uh, sin, um, and this future destruction. And so, of course, we get, it goes right into a promise after that. One of the most beautiful sections of Micah um, is the first part of chapter 4. So it says, right after it talks about Jerusalem being flattened, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and the peoples shall flow to it. So the latter days... It's referring you know, to the future messianic reign of God that's going to be established in Zion. And the, the language of mountain is really important there. Uh, a mountain is a significant image in the Old Testament. It's where God was present uh, at Mount Sinai. And uh, it's a place where it shows God's presence, but also his power. And so we see God's presence here in um, being with his people, but also his power. We see the law of the Lord will come from, from this mountain into the earth. And that, that's sort of his, his reign and his rule that will come uh, from that. And uh, I love that image of, of people streaming. Uh, it may say, it's, at the end of verse 1, it says flow. You can also say stream. And, and you know, stream slow downhill. It's, it's an interesting inverted image of, of people streaming uphill. Um, to just the gravitational pull of God. <clears throat> and it gives, again, a, another picture. Or wait, that's uh, an old note. So verse 3 then. So that was verse 2, 1 and 2. Verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What a, a beautiful picture that Micah gives us here. Um, and, you know, it's synecdoche, which is a, a fancy word for, you know, the part being for the whole. And so, you know, you can think today of, of the weapons we have today and how they will be beaten down and, and used for, um, you know, for the good. Um, and there will be no war, there will be, you know, verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Does anyone know earlier in the Old Testament where that phrase, every man sitting under his vine and under his fig tree? Just Bible trivia for you. Does anyone remember earlier in the Old Testament where that phrase was used? 
So King Solomon, when it gets to that part in King Solomon's reign where, where it's kind of the climax of his reign and, and really he's, he's enjoying all the fruits of David's labor and everything David had poured into Israel and now it's, you know, Solomon, things are going so well under Solomon and, and I think it's First Kings or Second Kings 4, it talks about, you know, this, this beautiful moment in Solomon's reign where every Israelite was sitting under their own vine and under their own fig tree, which is sort of this metaphor for just flourishing, flourishing in the land, enjoying the land, things beginning to be the way they're supposed to be. And then, of course, things just go downhill from there. Um, and, and so Micah is now talking about a different king, um, sort of this new Solomon, uh, where this will occur. Um. And then it goes, so there's a promise, but then it goes back to threat at the end of verse 4. Um, we see that at the end of verse 4, where they will, it talks about them being exiled to Babylon. Um, and, it, and it kind of, because the southern kingdom went to Babylon, it, it sort of uh, prophesies that. And then um, it goes back into promise. Even though Babylon will, will capture them, it then says that Israel will then be victorious again over their captors. So it, goes, it kind of predicts that they will come back out of exile. Um, look at verse, chapter 4, verse 12. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. That's Babylon. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And so that's talking about how God will then judge Babylon eventually. Um, So that's another promise. And then it goes back to threat. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1. This is beginning a section that we're also very familiar with, especially around Christmas, that is quoted in Matthew. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And, And... this is probably referring to the, the siege. Uh, you know, Assyria was able to take away the northern kingdom. They tried to conquer Judah, um, and they got up to um, Jerusalem, and they sieged it. That was during Hezekiah's reign, but it, it was ultimately unsuccessful, and that talks about that in the, the book of Kings. Um, and so there's this threat of, of Assyria sort of prophesied. But then there's this beautiful promise um, given as, it, as chapter 5 continues. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. No one would ever think of anything good coming from uh, a small town like Bethlehem, but that's how God works. Um, you know, that's where David came from, um, and that's where God's eventual messianic uh, figure would come from, it, it talks about. And, um, you know, it, it goes on, therefore he shall give them up until the time. So that's, that's referring to sort of the kingship line of um, Israel. If you remember the, the Davidic, you know, God gave this covenant to David that David's throne will be established forever. Um, but then there was this, this period um, after Israel's exile and coming back, where the, the Davidic line ceased for a while. Um, and here it's sort of saying, um, in verse 3, he shall give them up until the time when, when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return. And so, um, 
There's a lot going on there. It's, it's talking about the cease of David's line and how she gives birth. It's talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. Um, then the rest of his brothers shall return. If you remember in Acts chapter 2, the amount of Jews immediately who uh, came to Jesus, uh, the, this, the initial success of um, Christianity in the early church in, in Acts, the first few chapters of Acts, some believe that that's almost uh, you know, fulfilled, a fulfillment of this, this part where it says, um, the rest of his brothers shall return. Just the people of God coming back to God in, in right relationship through the Son. And then it talks again about a shepherd, 5 verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure. For now, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Uh, just a great summary of, of, of what Jesus would be for us. Um, but then it goes back to threat. Things still aren't, you know, things aren't there yet. We're not there yet. Things in that day were still um, very grim. And so it, it, it's this longer section of threat. 5.10 through 7.7, 7. it's almost two chapters. It talks about how God is going to, you know, eventually take down all the idols in Israel. Um, you know, look at chapter 5, verse 13. I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. It's such an encouraging, really, picture of how God will, you know, think of even today our struggle with idolatry and how God... Um, is, is the one we need to find strength in to, to overcome our idols. And, and here we see him promising to, to rid the idols from the people. Um, and then this section continues uh, in, in chapter 6, 1 through 8. So chapter 6, 1 through 8, the, the first five verses of it, I, I want to try to put Micah 6, 8, the most famous verse in Micah, into a little bit of context for you to help understand it even more. Um, in the first part of chapter 6, it's, again, there's this court scene. We see um, the Lord kind of pleads the terms of the covenant. If you remember, there's these terms of the covenant of blessings and curses, and he's talking about his, how he has been faithful and how they've been unfaithful. It's sort of this subpoena to them. Um, and uh, he, he calls the mountains to be witness, and uh, he's the plaintiff. Um, and Israel is the accused in verses 1 through 5. Um, and then verse 6, verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. God has just kind of come to this point of saying, okay, why aren't you following me? Like, what, what is it about me that, that, you don't, that, that is not drawing you back to me? And then he rehearses right after that in verses 6, verses 4 and 5 of who he is to them. And, and he brought them out of Egypt. And he is the God of their fathers and all the things he's done for them. And then, um, and then, it's, um, then it goes into verses 6 and 7. Um, and this is right before 6-8. So chapter 6, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Um, so what is he getting at there? What, what, 
what is going on here? It's, it's sort of, okay, God has kind of brought his case against them in verses 1 through 5, kind of asked them to, to plead their case. And then there's this response of the people talking about all the things they're doing for God. And what does it involve? And it's sort of this escalation you see. There's a, there's a, it's a good rhetorical device. There's this escalation. Um, it starts off with, with calves, that things they're doing for God, these rituals they're doing. They give them calves, but then it goes to thousands of rams. And then it talks about rivers of oil. And even as far as giving their, you know, being willing to give their firstborn, um, verses 6 and 7. And, um, you know, it's, it's talking about um, how the people um, would be going through the motions, really, in their relationship with God. And so Micah 6.8 is trying to bring more depth to our relationship with God and, and more depth to how um, we think about following him. And so verse 8 which we all know, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? It's almost as if God is saying there, the things I'm about to say to you, you know these things. These are things the other prophets have been telling them the last decades. These are things that God has said, you know, throughout the Bible. You know, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And and like I said earlier, this is kind of like um, you know, the Old Testament version of James, where James says, you know, your faith without works is dead. You, there needs to be a change in your life. And um, it also reminds me of Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, where he has that whole, he goes, you know, on and on in verse thir- of 1 Corinthians 13 of, you know, I can have the beautiful, you know, speech, but if I have not love, and he keeps saying, but if I have not love, if I have not love, and that's, that's a lot of what's going on in Micah 6.8. Um, you can have all these ritualistic things, and, and at the end of the day, it's not the, the rituals that are the problem, it's the heart with which they're, they're doing them um, in verses 6 and 7. And so he's, he's telling them, um, you know, I I want you, and Jesus did this too in his ministry, if you remember. You know, he talks to the Pharisees, and they're doing all these things, but they've neglected the weightier matters. Um, I forget the exact language Jesus uses there. So what does he require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly. Um, you know, so justice, we could, we could speak for days on, on, on that. Um, but we often think of it as retribution, punishing wrongs, and that's certainly part of what justice is in the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's, it's more of uh, righteousness in the law, uh, courts of, you know, righting wrongs. It's giving wrong, wrongdoers their due. But there's also a deeper sense of it as well, a, a broader sense of it. It's, it's standing up. It's giving those who cannot stand up for themselves, um, you know, the poor, the powerless, the vulnerable, the voiceless, giving them their due as well. So, so punishing giving the due to those who've done wrong, but also giving due to those um, who, who need help. Um, and there's, there's a sense of justice there as well. Um, if you think kind of broadly about the, how the Old Testament talks about it, and it talks a lot about it. Um, as one person said, it's creating a situation and a society where everything is right, a society where every last person in it, including the most vulnerable and the weakest, can flourish and thrive. That's, that's kind of a broader sense of justice. But it's doing it with the right motivation. You know, it, 
talks about doing justice, but um, you also need to love kindness and, and, and have humility. You know, we can fall to kind of two extremes as we go, go about th- these things. You know, we can worry so much about having the right motivation that we just um, don't do anything at all. Um, or we can go to the other extreme where we're very active, but then it, it can fill us with uh, judgment to those who maybe aren't as active as us. And so this, this verse, I love how it brings that all together, where we need to um, seek to help those in need, but do it with, with a humble heart. <clears throat> and I could say way more about that verse. Um, and then uh, it talks, then after this part, it goes into more of the sins of the leaders um, and the consequences of those. Um, and then there's a lament. So chapter 7 is the last chapter of Micah. He kind of starts it out with this lament. Um, the godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among the mankind. It reminds me of Romans 3, I think, is Romans 3, or I think he's quoting actually the Old Testament, a different part of the Old Testament. There's no one who does good. Um, he's just lamenting just the fact of how bad things have gotten. Um, and I love how he says in chapter 7, verse 7, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the, for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Um, and this leads then to the final section of Micah, where this is kind of this final promise. <clears throat> God will judge his people, but then he will redeem them, and he will punish their captors. <clears throat> and then go to the last three verses of Micah, uh, verses 18 to 20. Um, it says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity? By the way, he says, who is a God like you? So obviously he's like, man, who is a God like you, uh, full of grace? What is the name Micah? Literally means, who is a God like you? So he's actually, um, his, his name has now come to fulfillment in, in kind of the prophecy that he had, the prophetic life he had. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfastness, steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. <clears throat> so who is a God like you? One way we can answer that by saying no one, but we can also say, yes, someone was like God. Um, and then the rest of this, this specific passage really previews the, all that Jesus would be to his people. You know, we fail to do justice. We fail to love kindness. We fail to walk humbly with God the way we're called to. Um, and, and you're kind of left with this sense in Micah, is there any hope? And, and he, he finishes beautifully saying yes. That, and, and we know more fully um, from our point of view um, with the rest of the Bible, that there is one who has done, who has perfect, done perfect justice and kindness and humility. And if we put our faith in him, uh, we have hope. And God's judgment, all the judgment that God has towards the wickedness, ultimately fell on his son. Um, and now we get to use our freedom in Christ to bless those in need. And, and the Spirit um, has filled us um, to, to have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and I think of goodness in there and part of goodness is, is what Micah is talking about Have, and, and the spirit God has given us a, his spirit to do that and so 
you know, that's, that's kind of a sense of Micah. It's, it's, threat, it's promise and it's judgment. It's, it's judgment and hope. It's threat and promise. And I wish I had time to, to do a really important section, and I've run out of time, unfortunately, but I'll just kind of give... I was going to talk about kind of a challenge that this presents us with to, um, you know, in the Spirit, in the freedom of Christ, to, to um, you know, take the love that Christ has towards us and give it to the, towards others, those in need. Um, and then I was going to talk more about poverty, and uh, you've probably heard of this book, When Helping Hurts. If you haven't, I strongly encourage you to look at it if you want to, because obviously Micah talks about a lot about uh, loving the poor, um, and there's, there are more helpful and less helpful ways to do that. Um, and you can overanalyze it to death. Some of the struggles they've had with this book is they've, they've felt like in some parts of the church, it's, it's kind of frozen the church in a way. It's just it's made the church kind of overanalyze, and they don't do anything, and, and that was not their heart um, in writing this book. Um, their, their hope is that people would, would take these principles um, to do more effective mercy ministry. Um, so if I had had time, I was going to kind of give, like, they, one of the dangerous things they do in this book is you need to have the right diagnosis of poverty. You need to have the right definition. Poverty is not just a lack of material things. Uh, it's much deeper than that, and... and um, they talk about poverty being the result of broken relationships. Broken relationship with God, broken relationship with yourself, broken relationship with others, and broken relationship with creation, a sense of purpose and a sense of um, dignity. And how we all, all people struggle with those four relationships and, and experience poverty in those relationships. Um, I'll just give this sec, this... Um, you take a material definition of poverty plus feelings of superiority of the materially non-poor and feelings of inferiority of the materially poor, it's harm to both. The materially poor, it's harm to both. And that's, that's one of the things that they try to talk about here. And they talk also about the difference between relief and development. Sometimes, he said, they said the biggest problem the American church has is we often treat a situation that should be development where you need to walk with them and help empower them we treat it as a relief situation where we just give something. Um, and they get into that a lot. I was also going to talk about this book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, because obviously it talks about justice in Micah. And he, one of the things he does is, is distinguish between what he calls social justice A and social justice B. Social justice A is, is sort of true justice, that the, and kind of biblical justice. Um, and, and he talks about, in, in some parts of this book, on ways that... Um, he says the, the phrase social justice is not the problem. There, there's truth to that phrase, but it's just, it's, there's ways that it's been used in very unhelpful ways, um, in destructive ways, really. Um, and I was going to give a little bit of a preview of that, but alas, the tyranny of the clock. Um, so I, I definitely encourage those resources to you, and I'd be happy to have deeper conversations with you if you have some questions on some of those aspects of the so what. Um, I'll leave with this. Um, uh, you know, the challenge is that we need to 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 um, pursue justice more as as God's people. But here's an encouragement. This was written by um, an atheist who writes for the New, New New York Times. He's a skeptic. He's written at length about his observations of Christians worldwide, and he is impressed. Based on his personal observations while covering disasters and poverty all, of the, all over the world, 
He writes, in reporting on poverty, disease, and oppression, Christians are disproportionately likely to donate 10% of their incomes to charities. More important, go to the front lines at home or abroad in the battles against hunger, malaria, prison rape, obstetric fistula, human trafficking, or genocide, and some of the bravest people you meet are Christians. I'm not particularly religious myself, but I stand in awe of those I've seen risking their lives in this way, and it sickens me to see that faith mocked at New York cocktail parties. That's not to say Christians are perfect and there's not areas of growth, but I think it's encouraging to, to be reminded that there are many ways that God has worked through the church, um, and, and we get to be a part of that. Father, uh, we thank you for this book. pray that today would have been just helpful in even just the smallest way to encourage us uh, to dive more deeply into your word. We thank you for the gift of your word, and we pray that you'd help us get the most out of it. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.